Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Psalm 60, Psalm 60 is our sermon text this morning. Psalm 60, give ear to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. To the choir master, according uh, to Shushan Edith, a miktam of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Naharain and Aram Zobah, when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 uh, of Edomites of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness with exaltation. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 60, as we're looking at this morning, is a bit different than the psalms that preceded it. We went through a section of psalms from Psalm 52 to Psalm 59 where David was writing primarily of situations that happened before he took the throne. He had been anointed by the prophet and, and by God's command to be, to be the, the new king when God had rejected Saul because Saul, if you remember, had rejected the word of the Lord. So David was kind of the king without a throne for a good period of time. Saul was chasing him, persecuting him, trying to kill him. And so Psalms 52 to 59, in, in some way, shape, or form, were written regarding David's uh, fleeing for his life, his betrayals, all the sufferings and persecutions that he endured prior to ascending to the throne once Saul died. Well, this psalm is now written uh, regarding the time where David was reigning now. He had taken the throne uh, as king even if uh, this was prior to the full consummation of his rule. You know, all of the areas that he was meant to be king of had not been brought under his reign yet. The kingdom was not united. He was still fighting many battles and wars. Uh, you may have heard the old saying, many of you probably have, you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, you know. Uh, well, David, in this case, we see that that is true in, in David's case as well, that his... Just because he finally, you know, was, was not having to be chased by Saul, uh, just because he had finally taken the throne, didn't mean that all of his troubles just magically went away, did they? It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, that he put the crown on, sat on the throne, and everything else was, uh, was just, uh, easy as could possibly be. Uh, far from it, actually. His problems did not go away. In some ways, they magnified when he wore that, that crown. Well, the title or the superscription of Psalm 60 is pretty long, as you can tell, as when I was reading that, and it's uh, some, somewhat specific. There, David, David kind of tells us there of the events he was dealing with when he wrote this particular psalm, uh, the things that served as the backdrop 
for what we read about in the body of the text of Psalm 60. He says in the superscription there that this psalm was written, quote, when he strove, he being David, when he strove with Aram Naharain and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, uh, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So kind of specific. Um, now, most commentators point back to Second Samuel chapter 8 as, as giving us the background of what that's talking about, detailing the events that are spoken of there in the superscription. Now, that chapter, if you read chapter 8 of Second Samuel, um, it doesn't really give one the impression of the difficulties that they were going through at the time. It's kind of a, a detail of, of David's victories. It's rather brief. Um, it kind of gives... You could be forgiven for taking the impression from it that everything just kind of went great and everything was falling into place with no no trouble or difficulty. It certainly doesn't emphasize the difficulties or the afflictions of David and the nation of Israel that they were undergoing at that time that David talks about in this psalm. So we know there was more going on than what that brief chapter in 2 Samuel 8 tells us about. Now that chapter uh, follows right on the heels of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And chapter 7, if you know uh, that book at all of 2 Samuel, uh, contains what's called the Davidic Covenant. The Davidic Covenant. That's where the Lord promised David that he was going to raise up his offspring or his seed after him, whose kingdom the Lord himself was going to establish that his seed or offspring was going to build a house for the name of the Lord and the throne of whose kingdom the Lord says he was going to establish how long? Forever. Forever. That cedar offspring that was promised to David in that covenant sounds a lot like Solomon, doesn't it? But who really was it? Was the Davidic covenant fulfilled ultimately by Solomon or no? No. The Davidic covenant was ultimately about Jesus Christ, who was David's greater greater son. He is the one whose throne of his kingdom God established not for 40 years, but for forever. And so it's not Solomon, but David who was that seed that was promised to Abraham, to Abraham, to David in the Davidic covenant. Well, chapter 8 tells us about the victories of David and his armies in defending and uniting and gathering together all the tribes of Israel under one banner and rule. They were kind of fractured at the time when David took the throne. Uh, twice in chapter 8 we're told, quote, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Twice, it, it, word for word, that exact same phrase, that the Lord gave victory to David wherever, like wherever he set his foot, he won, he won the battle. That's what the text says. And then, as if to summarize chapter 8, we're told uh, in verse 15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. It's, you know, almost they would expect Second Samuel, if we were writing it, it would have been, and they all lived happily ever after the end, right? Like, like a fairy tale. Well, it's not a fairy tale, it's a true story. And so there's more that goes after chapter 8. But that one thing is the key. It says that David reigned over all Israel. But it took a lot to get that to happen. And that's what David tells us here partly in Psalm 60. So David's victories, remember twice it said the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. He still had to go. He still had to lead. He still had to fight. David's victories were not without battle and struggle. David didn't just show up and walk in the door, so to speak, and everybody laid down their arms. He still had to go and fight the battles that God called him to fight. Everything wasn't sunshine and rainbows. 
Even the superscription says twice, uh, it says David strove with, quote, at least two different enemies. He, he, it means he fought. It didn't mean he had an argument. It meant he had to go to war. Now, this psalm, the superscription or title tells us, is a psalm of instruction. Uh, and so you and I, I think, we have to sometimes learn to resist the urge that we may have, however strong it may be, to kind of view this psalm, especially when it tells us the historical circumstances in the title, right? We have to resist the, the urge to view this kind of a psalm of instruction as just kind of historically interesting rather than personally uh, relevant to us. I think that's the temptation, especially when it's about David. You know, David's a king. I'm not a king. David fought battle, literal battles. I'm not fighting a literal battle, you know, clash of arms and things in our day. That's not, we're not in the same situation as David was. And so I think sometimes we're tempted to kind of view this as, a, as if it was a museum piece under glass. Oh, this is interesting, this situation that David is talking about. It has no possible relevance to me, but I think it does. You don't have to be a king in order to profit from the lessons of Psalm 60. When David says it's a psalm of instruction, he doesn't just mean for himself. It's written in Scripture for your benefit and for mine. You don't have to be a part of the nation of Israel in David's day to see how these lessons from this psalm might apply to us in the church and even to our nation as a whole. In fact, Christ, as the son of David, David's greater son and his Lord, as David himself quotes, the uh, Lord Jesus Christ, rather, quotes David in Luke chapter 20, saying that how, if he's his, his son, how is he also his Lord? Because David calls his son, the Christ, his what? His Lord. Uh, and so David and his reign as the king, in a sense, serves as a type of Christ's reign as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have to look through this circumstances of David and his battles and victories as a type of the victory that was to come through his, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the greater and is the greater king. And so the psalm has a lot to teach you and I about the kingdom of Christ through the types and shadows of David's reign and the battles that he had to fight as Israel, you might know Israel was the outward form of the visible church in the Old Testament. In other words, the church militant. There's a reason we use that term. Uh, even so, there's much that we in the church militant today have to learn and take to heart from Psalm 60 and other psalms like, like this one. Now, the first thing we see in this psalm is David's lament. If you look at verses 1 through 3, you see David uh, offering up to God his lament and his prayer. He says, O oh God, you have rejected us broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it. It totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. What's he talking? What's what's going on that David is writing about here in these opening verses? What's he lamenting? about the Lord for a time chastised his covenant people. You see that all through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, but if you read your whole Old Testament, you will see from time to time, really in all times, in some ways, that God has to chastise his people for their sin and for their wickedness. David speaks of it as God rejecting them or turning his back on them. Now, that does God reject, literally reject his people whom he has redeemed? No. But does it seem to his people sometimes that God has turned his back? Absolutely he does. Even our, our confession, the Westminster Confession, talks about 
seasons of life due to sin and chastisement where it seems as if God hides his face from us for a time. Maybe you've known that a time or two in your life. That's how it seemed to David. That's certainly how it seemed to those who feared God at the time, as if God was turning his back and wasn't listening and wasn't answering. Now, humanly speaking, the calamities that, that fell upon Israel and in David's day were almost certainly the result of, of the actions of people, of wicked people and heathen nations, perhaps even natural disasters or other earthly circumstances. Now, we don't know if, uh, if verse 2 is speaking of a literal earthquake or if David's using poetic language. Uh, it could be one or the other. Uh, but notice the way that David uh, describes these things. Who does David ascribe all these things to? Circumstance, chance, luck? You know, that's just the way it goes. That's the way the cookie crumbles. No, that's not what he says at all. He, he attributes them uh, to, to God. Ultimately, who does he say caused these things, to, these bad things, these hard things to come to pass? He ascribes all of it ultimately to God and God's providence. All of the actions in the first three verses are attributed first and foremost to God himself. Now, does God use secondary causes? Certainly he does. Does he use wicked people and even heathen nations to accomplish his purposes? Certainly he does. Now, if the King James and the New American Standard translations, I think they they kind of bring this out a little more vividly in their translation, uh, which supplies the word you that's implied by the verbs in those verses. Listen, I'll, I'll read the New King James, uh, or the, the King James version of it. It says, O God, thou hast cut us off. Thou hast scattered us. Thou hast been displeased. O turn thyself to us again. Thou hast made the earth to tremble. Thou hast broken it. Heal the breaches thereof, for it shaketh. Thou hast skewed, uh, showed rather, thy people hard things. Thou hast made us to drink the wine of astonishment. Who did all these things? David, did David see the earthly circumstances and, and wicked people and heathen nations and things that caused what happened? Certainly, but who does he see behind it all? He says, God, I know that you did this. And God, the judge of the earth, did right in doing that. The people had acted wickedly in David's day and in Saul's day. They had in some ways departed from the Lord in doing what was evil in his sight. Remember that happened in previous times as well. Think of the wilderness wanderings after the Exodus. You know, you think of, of God bringing out his people with an outstretched arm, showing all kinds of miracles in the ten, the ten plagues, rescuing the people when they had no, they were between a rock and a wet place. You know, they had Pharaoh and his armies coming on them, barreling down and on them with nowhere to go. And what does God do? Splits a sea in half and then destroys Pharaoh's chariots in the sea. And you and I think, oh, after that, there must have been smooth sailing. You know, no, no sinning, no rejection of the Lord, no pining for Egypt and the slavery they endured. And yet, what do we know happened? They grumbled, they complained, people were swallowed up by the earth. God chastised them, Right? Think about the conquest of Canaan in the days of the book of Judges. It's a refrain all throughout the book. The people, again, did what was what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. But what does the book kind of show that to really be? Often what's right in our own eyes is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did God do? God brought chastisement until they cried out to him and turned, and then he sent one of the judges to rescue them. It's a, a thing that is over and over and over throughout Scripture and throughout the history of God's people into our day as well. In verse 3, what does David say? He says that God 
had made his people see, quote, hard things. I think it's an understatement it's a, of what he's saying. In other words, they experienced what the Puritans often called the fatherly displeasure of God in chastising his people for their sins and for their idolatry and wickedness. They experienced these hard things in things like defeats in battle, humiliations of their nation, natural disasters, droughts, famines, and things like that. All kinds of bad things that we might be tempted to just think is the luck of the draw. There's no luck of the draw. There's providence. God had, doesn't mean that you can pull the curtain back and mind read God, but you can be sure that God has purposes in all the things that happen for good or for ill. And very often the things that happen for ill are God's chastisements, his warning shots to call his people and people in general to repentance. What about us today? Do, do we read verse 3 and see David saying God made us see hard things? Or do we go, well, that was then, this is now. We don't, you know, we're almost deists now. We don't believe God actually does anything in time. That's not true at all. Have we, has God not also shown us sometimes in our day hard things? I think he has. Or, or, or are we just willfully blind to God's providence? As Presbyterians, as Calvinists, most of us, we like to talk, I like to talk about providence. Do we, we really believe in providence? We really believe that God, uh, that God is, his hand, his invisible hand is behind all things that come to pass, even the actions of, of men. Do we believe somehow that God has changed? Does God change? No. God does, is the Old Testament God different? He's mean, but the New Testament God is now all niceness and light and sweetness and light. No, God does not change. In fact, it's a good thing God doesn't. What does the Bible say? It's because God does not change, therefore we are not consumed. If God changed, his word could not be stand, stood upon and believed and trusted in, and we would have no nowhere to go, no redemption. Do we not often, I think, lament the state of the visible church in our nation and elsewhere today? I know some of you have gone on trips and seen churches that were once Brimming with people hearing the word of God taught in sincerity and truth, and now they are empty. They are museum pieces. They are being turned into museums and mosques and all kinds of things all over the world. Do we not lament the state of the church in our own nation as well? Do we not lament the state of our nation in many ways in our day where all manner of wickedness and perversity are openly encouraged, practiced, and even celebrated in our land? As David says in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like kind of throwing your hands up in the air and saying, it's just a lost cause. I don't see any light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. I don't feel like there's anything I can do. I vote the way I think I should vote. I do the things I think I should do, but I don't see any change. I pray, and sometimes it feels like there's nothing happening. What, when God makes you and I live to see hard things in our day so that we stagger, what can we do? What can the righteous do? Well, in verses 4 through 5 of our text, thankfully, David sounds, sounds a, a note of hope and mercy for us in pointing to the banner of God. He says in verses 4 to 5, You, God, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that, we may, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. There is a banner that God has set up. A banner is a flag, a flag of sorts for those who feared God, for the faithful army of the church militant. The great Puritan Bible commentator Matthew Poole notes that there are at least three purposes for a banner or a flag. 
He says, first, that is a banner, quote, of union. It's supposed to be a cause, a rallying point for unity under one head or rule. Secondly, he says that, that it's a banner of, quote, battle. So banners are for unity. Banners are for battle or for war. You know, think of it as a, a rallying point and a rallying sign that we wage the good warfare under its colors. You see the flag and you follow the flag into battle. The third purpose, he says, of, of the banner is that of triumph. The flag still standing is a sign of triumph when one sees his banner or flag still standing in the heat of battle or after the battle is won. Think of the words, I will not sing them, don't worry, but the, our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. I don't know if you've ever sang that and thought about the words and the scene it's depicting for us. It says, Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Who's brought stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight? Over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof, proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does the star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. What's he saying? When you think about what, what, what is the picture that, that Francis Scott Key is painting for us there? The bombs are going off. And what do you see by the light of the explosions? The flag's still waving. It's not done. The battle's not over. We haven't lost. We're still there. Victory is still within reach. Well, that's the same picture in a greater way that David's painting for us here in verses 4 through 5. All is not lost and victory is still within reach because God himself has given us a banner to rally to, to unite under, and to march forward into victory in the battle. We who are believers in Jesus Christ have an even greater banner or flag given by God to all those who really fear him, that we might flee to it, run to it, and be delivered, verse 5, that God might save by his right hand and answer us in our cries for mercy and deliverance at his hand. What What is our banner? If God has given us a banner that we can flee to, those who fear him, what is the banner that we are fleeing to? What is the banner that we're supposed to unite under, rally around, and as the hymn that we sang earlier says, lift high into battle. Is it not the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is our banner not the gospel? And in fact, is our banner not even Christ himself? I believe that's what David and the Holy Spirit in inspiring this text is telling us. Isaiah 11.10 says it, uh, much more explicitly, it says, in the day, in that day, the root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? Jesus Christ. He's the one, the seed promised to David. The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse, that's Jesus Christ, shall stand as a signal for the Peoples. The King James renders it not as a signal as the ESV does, but as an ensign. An ensign. What's an ensign? It's a banner. It's the exact same word used in Psalm 60. He's talking about a flag. He's talking about a, a banner. The root of Jesse who was to stand as a signal or banner for the people of whom the nations were all going to inquire is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah 11.10 tells us. Well, it's because of that also in verses 6 through 11, David talks about God speaking. So we have the banner of God. Now we see the promises 
of God. In verse 6, it's that God had spoken in his holiness, his promises in the gospel of Christ. And it's because of that that David could flee to that banner in time of distress, look to him for deliverance and salvation, and speak confidently of the things that God had promised and sworn to give him and to do for him when he didn't yet possess them. You know, Rob, he likes to read through Hebrews, and I, Hebrews 11, uh, 1 came to mind. It gives you a definition of faith. Uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or certainty of things not seen. That's what David's doing here. Was the, was the kingdom united when David was fighting? No. Did David, was David already resting from all of his foes? Was he, was he sitting on the throne, reigning over a united Israel, all the tribes, all the areas he was? No. But in this psalm, he says, you know what? God has spoken in his holiness. God has promised these things to me as the king of Israel, and God will bring them to pass. It, doesn't, it probably didn't look like they were going to come to pass, but David said, God said it, therefore it's going to be. Faith is the substance. It's if he holds it in his hand already. That's what your faith does when you possess Christ by faith, when you're in Christ by faith. All the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ are yours. Things like like the resurrection, like being in heaven forever with Christ and, and no more tears or mourning or crying or pain or death. You have that now as if it's already in your hand. How do you have that? By faith. Because God has promised. Look at verses 6 through 8. David says, God has spoken in his holiness. And then what's the result? These, these words may sound strange, but I'll try to explain them. Because God has spoken with exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. What, what are those? They're the tribes. They're the tribes of Israel. He's saying, they're not under me yet, but they are. Because God has spoken. What God has spoken will happen. Then he says, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. What are those things? Those were the enemies of Israel. And he says, I haven't beat them yet, but I have. Moab, I'm going to wash my dirty feet in them. Edom, I'm going to throw my shoe at. Here, take my dirty shoe. It's going to be like a slave. And over Philistia, the Philistines that is, he shouts in triumph already, even though it hadn't happened yet. No matter how things might have seemed at present to David, because God, his God had spoken, he trusted the promises of God and the faithfulness of his God. David confesses in faith here that he would see the farthest reaches of his kingdom that God had promised, including all the tribes of Israel united under his rule, under his reign, all of the promised land divided up and portioned out to the tribes as God had decreed, when it even wasn't there. Yet he would also live to see all the enemies of God's people, Moab, Edom, Philistia, routed, defeated, and made subject to him. Why? Because whatever God has promised, he will do. He will most certainly bring it to pass. Not one word of God will fall to the ground. All of the promises of God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Even these promises. And how, how will those things come to pass for David? He tells us in verses 9 through 11. He says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? He's talking about going forth to conquer in, in battle. 
Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. In other words, he's saying, you know, God, he's acknowledging God has chastised. God has not gone forth with our armies. Remember, in the past, in, in, the, in the conquest of Canaan, when God didn't go forth with them, what happened? They lost. When God went forth with them, no matter how big the army was they faced, they won because God was with them. He says there, he says, Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. You know, David acknowledges there, he says that God had rejected them. He says it twice. He says it there again in verse 10. Had God himself not refrained from going forth with their armies in the past? Had David not seen it? During their season of chastisement and trial. I like how the New King James renders verses 9 and 10. I think it brings out the sense of what he's saying here a little more clearly. He says, who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? That's that's faith. And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies. In other words, he did that before, but he's going to lead us forth to the strong city and lead his king to Edom, I think that captures the idea very well. Who was going to make these things come to pass? Who would bring David to the strong city and lead him to Edom to gain the victory? Was it not God, the very same God, who previously had cast off his people and restrained himself from going forth with them into battle? David entrusted himself and his kingdom to God, and so he prayed. And in verses 11 to 12 is his prayer. He says, Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. You know, one of the sins uh, of the people of Israel and of their kings uh, throughout their history very often was when they faced an enemy that was stronger than them, which they often did, rather than going to the Lord in faith, which it takes faith, right? We, we act like sometimes I think we think that that's not a big deal, what did they do? They often went to other nations, pagan nations, and tried to make treaties. And very often, what did God do for that? He chastised them for it. In fact, very often, he brought worse nations that they put their trust in to, to chastise them themselves. God did that. But David here says, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. We often think the salvation of man is a real thing. We put our trust in things other than God and his word and his promises in the gospel we put our trust in our own ingenuity, our own inventions, our own programs, our own resources and things. And yet God says through David here, vain is the salvation of man. And only God can grant us help against the foe. David wasn't going to put his faith in man or in princes or in a son of man in whom, as our call to worship says, there's no salvation. He would be blessed by God by having the God of Jacob as his help and whose hope would be in the Lord his God, Psalm 146. Verse 5. But notice this. David didn't get to sit back and do nothing, did he? David didn't pray to God and then sit back and wait for God to just wave his wand and, and make it happen. Uh, he would do whatever God commanded. He would go forth into battle and the Lord would lead him and accompany him. He says in verse 12, With God we shall do valiantly. There was work for David to do. David acknowledges it and David was willing to do it as long as God went forth with them. But who gets the glory for it? With God, we shall do valiantly, but who gets the glory for it? He says, it is he, God, who will tread down our foes. Who who wins the battle? What does the Bible say multiple times? The battle belongs to the Lord. 
We still have to fight. Remember the conquest of Canaan in, in the book of, of Joshua? Remember what it says? Like God, God promised this land all the way back to Abraham that they've been given this land, but what did they have to do to get it? They had to go in and take it. And they had to go in and take it from some pretty scary armies. And sometimes God made them do ridiculous things that made no sense to us, humanly speaking. You know what? Go in and march around Jericho. Don't fight. Just march around the walls. We would be like, wait, what? Time, you know, time out, Joshua. I'm not sure I heard you right. Well, God's ways aren't our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes we have to just do what he says and trust that God has a plan and knows what he's doing. What about us in the church today? Do we not have enemies in this world? Even those, as Paul says, who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Christ is our banner. and There's many enemies of that banner of Christ. Do we see all things now subjected to Christ as our reigning king? No. Hebrews 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that's Christ, he left nothing outside his control. But then he says, At present we do not yet see everything subjection to him. Is Christ reigning right now? Yes. Is Christ reigning over all things in the universe now? Yes. We're not, we're not waiting for Christ to come back for his reign to start, as some seem to suggest. He's reigning now. His ascension and being seated at God's right hand, the whole point, the scripture says, is that he's reigning over all things for his church now. Not later, but, but, but we don't see it that way always. Do you and I, does it look, does it always look like Christ is reigning? No, that's what Hebrews tells us. It's why faith as chapter 11 says, is so important. He reigns over all things now. Do we see every knee bowing to Christ right now and every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father? No, but we will because God has ordained it to come to pass. We will. Do you presently see all the nations brought into obedience to the gospel of Christ so that his kingdom spreads from shore to shore? Not yet, but we will. Because God in his holiness has spoken. Do we not have a task that's every bit as daunting and scary and impossible in our own strength than anything the 12 tribes ever did in taking possession of the promised land and even more difficult than anything David faced in uniting the kingdom and defending it in his day? We do. We have something every bit as impossible and scary as what they were called to do. The task that they had the battles that they fought were a picture of something even more humanly impossible and the divinely glorious task of making disciples of all the nations and seeing Christ's kingdom extended on this earth, which Christ commands his church in what we call the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, that's what we call the Great Commission. It says, now these are the words of Christ. These are our marching orders. If we're the church militant, what's our marching orders? Well, here it is. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's reigning now. God has given him all authority as our mediator and head and king. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Just like he told the the, the people of Israel, go in and take it. Go in and take the promised land. Now he says to us, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our king isn't in the back. Our king leads from the front 
and he himself is also our banner. May you and I, like David, flee to the banner of Christ our King, and so lift it high as we go forth into battle, armed with the word of life and the gospel, the presence of Christ's spirit, and faith in the promises of God, so that we might be able to say with David in verse 12, verse 12 should be our uh, our exclamation as well, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. He is the one who will make disciples. He is the one who will gather and defend his church from all her enemies and ours. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the reality, the truthfulness of your scriptures, that they uh, don't paint for us uh, a fairy tale existence, uh, but they, they show life as it really is. They show the struggles, the fights, the battles, and even the victories uh, that come only through faith in Christ, our King and, and, and Lord. Uh, we thank you for these things that you allowed David, your, uh, your king, to go through, that we might see the struggles uh, that we endure in a similar way, and that we serve not David, but uh, his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his Lord and ours. And we ask that you would give us grace when we see hard things in this life, that we might not get overly discouraged, that we might uh, have those hard things Uh, We pray that you would, in your kindness, cause those things to lead us to repentance. It is your kindness that leads your people to repentance, that you might grant repentance to your church. And we pray that you might even grant repentance to our land, that you would, uh, as your scriptures say, that if your people who are called by your name, if we we pray, we humble ourselves and repent and pray that you will hear from heaven and, and forgive our sin and heal our land, Lord, we pray that you might do even that. In our day, we pray that you might, we might get to, to see in this life that the power of the gospel of Christ going forth with great power and authority, that disciples will be made here and elsewhere, that uh, you might turn our land back to you. We pray that you'd start here in Ramona, that if there's anybody here today, this morning, that doesn't yet know you, that you might open their eyes today, that they might flee to Christ, flee to the banner uh, of Christ himself and have life and forgiveness in his name. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.